Bodies by the Numbers is a horror podcast. We sometimes cover mature content and often deliver spoilers. Viewer discretion is advised. Yes, Grace, sorry. Grace. You right. got this? I got this. You ready? Yes. Hi, and welcome to Bodies by the Numbers, a horror podcast where we keep track of how we die in horror media. I'm your host, Andrew Mack, and this is my co-host. Grace Lee. Today we are covering Scream 3, done in 2000, directed by Wes Craven, written by Aaron Kruger, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Meh. Um, a few things before we dive into feelings check or any of that. So, between Screams 2 and 3, Columbine happened. Scream 3 was going to be a much different movie than what we got. Stu Mocker was going to be orchestrating a new killing spree oh, in shit. Woodsboro High School. Oh! Which would have basically changed the entire movie. Yeah, oh my god, yeah. And call might happen they can't do that because it's too close to real life yeah so as they're rewriting the scripts kevin williamson is now doing something else because he wrote that script oh shit and aaron Kruger just threw it away and wrote his own script however you will see throughout this movie that they keep on making jokes about the script being changed last minute continually (laughs) Because that's literally what happened. Oh, shit. He kept on giving them different scripts day after day, take after take. And luckily, this movie's pretty fucking cohesive. Oh, God, yeah. But a lot of the cast were frustrated, and it even made it into the movie itself because Wes Craven's like, this is a meta movie. We make meta jokes. Yeah. And honestly, I can't imagine, like, learning and memorizing a script so I can give my lines and then them being like, oh, we changed it. I think I would rip everybody's hair out. Yeah, so despite all that went against this movie, they even tried to convince Wes Craven to make this a bloodless film. Why? But Wes Craven put just because of the violence. Uh Uh-oh. And, you know, when they were going through the shooters stuff they were finding like violent video games i believe even the original scream movie was in there i do not quote me on that but like they found you know a meandry of violent media and tried to make that you know oh this affected the killer this is why he went and did this and i'm gonna go with billy loomis original quote you know, movies don't make killers. They just make killers more creative. Yeah, it's like all those people who blamed, like, Call of Duty for, like, active shooters. That's not... That's not how that works. No, and... something's gotta be wrong with the person yeah. for them to do this. Yeah. Now, with all of this said, let's get into our feelings check first and foremost. Grace, how did you like Scream 3? Honestly, I was a little nervous going to this movie just because... 
I really, really enjoyed Scream 1 and Scream 2, and you had been a little hesitant when talking about Scream 3, so I was had, like, low expectations and I was a little scared, but honestly, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was great. I had a blast. Honestly, like, even though, to me, this is still the lowest tier in the Scream ladder, I fully enjoy Scream 3. It's not a bad-made horror movie. It's just not the best Scream movie. And I think the part of it that kind of takes me out, and this will be an issue in later Screams as well, where I don't care about ghosts as much in slasher films like this. So when Sydney's being haunted by the ghost of her mother for some reason, that is the biggest detractor in the whole film for me. I mean, I even love the plot twist that Spoiler alert, there's only one ghost face in this film. Oh yeah, there's usually, there was two in the last and two in the one before. So, I think this Scream did really awesome in original things. I think this Scream also, like, was a little heavy-handed. And I'm glad that even though they leaned more into the satirical meta-commentary that Scream usually is, they still didn't hold back on the violence despite what the uh studios wanted yeah and honestly for me uh i think this movie just continues on the theme of scream 2 which is kind of like the sin of the parent right because like at least in like the second movie it turns out it was like the mom who was behind some of the killings and in this one it's well it's like the kid of the parent, right? But it all leads back to the parent because, of course, it's the parent who's the evil one. But anyway. Well, also, it kind of dips into, like, for a 2000 movie, kind of flipping off the Epstein, like, scandal that only got, like, what, aired out publicly in, like, 2021 to 2022? Yeah. Is that about right? I can't remember. Fuck me with dates. I can't remember that shit. But, you know, that whole era of Hollywood where, like, young women would go to Hollywood trying to make a big name for them. And sadly, they would be... Manipulated and coerced into doing things they didn't want to do. Exactly. So, with all this said about Scream 3, before we even dive into the plot synopsis, let's get into the movie. Alright. Well... Scream opens up over the very famous Hollywood sign. Um, and I think actually I spelled in my notes Hollywood wrong. I'm just gonna, <laughs> Andrew, don't look. I think I spelled it wrong. But moving on, you, you do see the very iconic Hollywood sign. It's from the point of view of a helicopter that's go, just going over like the Hollywood like traffic. I think they mentioned something about a car pileup. Some crash down the line has just made traffic a absolute nightmare and as we zero in on the cars we focus in on one car specifically which happens to house cotton weary uh i think he's on the phone with his producer his producer or some person in his team yeah like someone like tied into his show that he now has it very much reminds me of that conversation in barbarian between justin long and <gasps> yeah. his like executive team executive um so it's definitely along those lines but he's just kind of talking to them kind of irritated about something um when he gets a ring on another phone in his car 
And I just love, like, this is way back, like, this is back in the day. All the phones look kind of like bricks a little bit. And he has, like, fucking, I think, like, three of these phones in his car. Well, one of the phones is built into the car. Oh, and yeah. the one he's initially on, I think, is that one. Is a cell phone or something like that. And then his cell phone gets called or vice versa. Or vice versa. He has a lot of phones. But regardless, he picks the other one up. And uh, he answers, like, yeah, you know, uh, what's this about? And it's actually someone who just made a missed call, but says that he sounds a lot like the very famous and renowned show host Cotton Weary and how sexy Cotton Weary is. So Cotton Weary (laughs) says, hold on for a second, goes to the other line, hangs up pretty much on there, but it's like, hey, I got another line, shots of, and like, and then revamps with like this strange person, like, oh yeah, you think Cotton Weary is sexy? And, like, like, the person's like, oh, my God, they're so cool. Conweary's the best. And they're like, oh, my gosh, are you Conweary? And he's like, you bet your ass I am. And they're like, what would your girlfriend say about this? And he's like, what girlfriend? And they're like, the girlfriend that I see right now in the shower. (laughs) And he's like, what? And at first I was like, oh, Conweary's girlfriend is cheating and he's cheating on her. No. That is not what is happening. It uh, changes to the classic Ghostface voice. Yeah. And it's the same voice actor that's always been Ghostface. And he has always been Ghostface to even the most modern movies. Really? So the voice actor yeah. over the phone, it's not a voice modulation at all. It is a voice actor being the voice modulation. Oh, I fucking love that. That's great. But uh, anyway, the admirer turns uh, into the killer and obviously asks the very famous pl- you know, question, like, let's play a game. They um, start to kind of grill Conweary on where Sydney is. Like, hey, where is Sydney Prescott? Do you know where she is? Give me the info or I kill your girlfriend. And Conweary is like, I don't know where she is. Also, when I find you, I'm killing you. And the killer's like, well, like, you're not complying. I'm going to go kill your girlfriend. And then Con Weary <laughs> starts to commit several, several laws and violations oh, on the road. He just, like, he literally hits, like, two cars trying to get out of traffic and then just drives like a fucking bat out of hell, you oh know? Oh, my God. Like an absolute lunatic. And it kind of cuts back and forth between... Cotton and the killer. Pretty much it obviously cuts to like um, Christine, who is Cotton Weary's girlfriend. First, we kind of get an outsider's perspective going closer to her shower. Then she gets out of her shower. We cut to Cotton Weary on the phone trying to call 911 as he again breaks several violations. But the 911, I guess, is going too slow. The operator isn't like moving fast enough. So he just throws the phone and tries to call Christine. When we switch back to her apartment or their apartment, it's revealed that the phone lines have been cut. And so, you know, obviously the phone isn't going through. Very classic ghost face move. Exactly. Then uh, cut back to Christine, where she's getting dressed, probably for some, like, date or something fancy. And all of a sudden, music starts blasting in the living room. Christine calls out, like, for Cotton, for Weary. And then (laughs) I think she says, also stop playing these, like, stab games. Okay, hold up. Real quick, before we go any further, why the fuck... Is Cotton Weary playing stab games when he is the OG motherfucker that got 
framed exactly. by the actual killers. Exactly. It's like, bro, you were in prison because they thought you stabbed someone. Why are you playing stab games with your girlfriend? Stab and raped someone. Like, oh. remember, that oh. was a whole part of the original movie. Oh, yeah. Not a good look, my friend. As Christine walks through the house to turn the music off, she hears... Cotton Weary's voice. But then that's, of course, when the killer jumps out and tries to kill Christine. Um, she runs, but the voice following her is deliberately Cotton's voice. She even manages to successfully, like, kind of, like, bear her, like, lock a door and barricade her in, like, an office. And we hear, on the other side of the door, Cotton Weary's voice. But then, of course, we cut to Cotton, who arrives at the apartment. He kind of, like, runs in, ditches his jacket, grabs, like, a like a fire poker. Fire poker. Yeah. And, like, I find it very clever that the movie immediately tips the hat of, like, it's not only the ghost face voice, but he can steal other people's voice. Yeah. All the way back into the cold open. We are told this. Yeah. Like, we are showed this. As he, you know, kind of enters in, we do also see in the background, it's Cotton Weary's um, show playing, which is like 100% cotton. Yes. Which I get is like a pun, right? Yeah, 100% cotton. But it's playing in the background as he goes looking for his girlfriend. Did you pay attention to what his uh, subject matter was? Oh, lunatics on the road, right? A little on the nose. Road rage. Is that a ring of bell cotton? But anyway... He sees the kind of, like, stabbed through door. So he, you know, barges in looking for Christine. Christine comes out of the closet with a fucking, like, golf, um, what are they called? A golf club. Thank you. A golf club. Starts, like, swinging at him. He's trying to talk her down, like, whoa, fuck, like, chill out. Christine's doing everything right here. Yeah, because she heard his voice. She has no idea that... You know, he hasn't been trying to kill her. Also, again, he was in jail for, you know, killing a woman for a while. So of course I, he's innocent, but, like, she's here kinda, we are. Yeah, yeah, so here we are. So she's kind of, like, right on the money. But anyway, as she keeps um, swinging for Cotton, of course, that's when the killer pops out of the background and kills Christine. Also, that's when um, Cotton and the killer kind of get into a little bit of a tussle, but... Sadly, Khan goes down and the killer wins and kills him. I know. Like, honestly, I think this movie had huge balls killing off. Like, I know Cotton wasn't a pivotal character, but that actor was in all three movies. Yeah, Yeah, the first one, it's a small TV bit part. The second one, he actually had a role. Almost kind of like, yeah, like a major role in the in the second one. And I think the thing is, is that I didn't really grow to like his character in the second film. Not saying I liked his character, but I was surprised that they kill him in the first, like, ten minutes of this movie. No, it's very telling where, like, the tone of this specific movie is going to come. Yeah. And I really actually find the cold open to work. Yeah, it definitely does. By killing a character we've known and grown attached to. Uh, We then cut to poor, poor Sydney and her emotional support dog. 
she appears to be kind of out in the middle of nowhere, walking up a dirt, long dirt driveway to her house. Before her house, there was a gate that has a locked security code that she enters and closes behind her. And then she goes into her house that is locked with security code, which she locks behind her. Can't blame her. Cannot blame her. And then when she sits down at her like computer desk, it's revealed that what she does for a job is that she works on a phone line crisis counseling for women. Um, which, honestly, good for her. Way like, to use, like, your own trauma to help others. Like, honestly, Sydney, Sydney's a real one. And she even goes under a, um, a stage name for the better lack of uh, actual words for it. I think she uses the stage name Laura. Yes, so, like... Her crisis counselor name is Laura, as opposed to Sydney. I bet this is just to keep that anonymity, not only for her customer, but for herself. Exactly, because as semi-common as the name Sydney is, it is clear that she has kind of barricaded herself in, right? We even when we see her telephone that there are only like there are only certain calls that she knows comes from, like. Her dad, I think Dewey, um, and then the like the call center, and that if I'm most assuming if any call comes that doesn't go through those main three channels, that she's not going to accept the call. Which honestly, again, this is you know she survived the last two screen movies for a reason. But then we then cut to Gail Weathers hosting a college class on uh, what is it news reporting? Yeah, just like street journalism yeah yeah a college course on journalism and honestly kudos to a couple of the kids in the in the uh, in the auditorium but they kind of call her out like because they're like so you're saying that at, like it is worth it to sacrifice anything to kind of get the story and gail weathers is like yes and they're like metaphorically yeah yes metaphorically and they're like well it wasn't worth it and that kind of just strikes her dumb for a second well uh right when that question's asked the teacher's like all right that's all the time we have today yeah um but as uh class is closing and shutting down the teacher alerts um, Gail that there is a police detective outside. She, you know, leaves the classroom and is introduced to, oh my god, Kale? Kincaid. Thank you, Kincaid, who, well, tells her that Cotton Weary is dead. And that, you know, with how tied he was to, like, the original, like... Woodsboro murders. murders that, yeah, something is most definitely afoot. We then cut to Sydney who um, sees in on the background TV a report of the cotton killing. And she honestly does seem a little distraught with she the death. turns it off after, like, she figures out the basic information because she doesn't want the details. And, no. like, man, how much would that suck? You finally, like, help get someone you wrongfully committed vindication, yeah. full vindication, and now they're murdered. Yeah, it's just uh, the world does not like seeing Sydney happy. Um, no. <laughs> no. Um, we then cut to the Stab Three Studio. We kind of like go through the set where we are then introduced to the actors that play the people who lived through the Woodsboro killing. We are introduced to what is it? 
Candy. I can't remember what Sydney. Yeah, we were both introduced to Candy, Sydney, uh, Ricky, and uh, I can't remember what Tom Tom's uh, character's name is, but he was like going to be the cop. He was going to be Dewey. Yeah. They're kind of just all talking amongst themselves about Conweary's death because there are police reporters and or police and reporters outside talking about how connected the Conweary death is to this movie. Especially with how in Stab 2, there was a whole death in, like, the theater. So they're all talking about, you know, well, how connected the deaths are and how, like, vulnerable any of them are to, well, dying. It is then we cut to Gail Weathers, who puts a secret camera into her purse and walks, kind of just strides into the set. It is there where she is, I don't want to say accosted by Jennifer, but... Jennifer kind of like pops out of the woodwork and says how much of a fan she is to Gail Weathers because she plays Gail Weathers in like the Stab movies. And they, I honestly love almost every interaction of Jennifer and Gail. It's fucking fantastic. I think it's a great mirror to like exactly who Gail was in one and two. Oh gosh, especially in the first film. Oh my God. She is hounding Gale like Gale hounded Cindy, uh, Sydney. Yeah. It's, and it's honestly, I just love how bitchy they are towards each other. Like, yeah. It's kind of like, if someone's a bitch to someone and they, and the other person doesn't fight back, you're like, oh gosh, they were just, they're just a terrible person. But these people are terrible people to each other. And so I don't feel bad for either of them. Also, who appears on set but uh, fan favorite, Dewey, who um, is a little upset because it turns out Gail had broken up with him for like second time. I think this is that she's broken up with in second or third time, something like that. And, you know, he is a little, like, you know, rightfully upset. It also turns out that Dewey is now dating Jennifer, who plays Gail in the movie, which is, you know, kind of fucking funny. It is also, though, it kind of gets around that, you know, Gail Weathers is here, and um, uh, it's, what is it? It's uh, Whit, Whitmore, I think is his name? Yes. Whitmore, yeah. Whitmore also appears and he recognizes Gail and he's like, look, no press on set. So Gail is kicked off. Oh, I Wait, also... Wait, was he Milton, not Whitmore? It, it was, it's Milton. It's Milton. You're right. Not not Whitmore. Um, so yeah, Milton appears and does kick Gail off the set. I did forget to mention, though, is that uh, I think it's like right... Be- it is kind of like right when the... Um, actors are talking i think it's right before the actors are talking there is also an interview with the police where the kind of i guess executive board of stab three are talking to like the writer and director about how stab three might be shut down because of the killing and Um, the director is like no fuck no you're not gonna stop my movie yeah this violence does not correlate with my movie exactly i feel like Wes Craven was probably having that exact argument with the studio. Oh, God, yeah. After Gail is kicked out, we then again cut to Sydney and her dad, who are at her house, and they're kind of just talking. It really, at this point in time, uh, Sydney's dad is trying to kind of convince her to move back home, um, that he misses her, that he is kind of just is scared for her, so... 
shut away like this. But then she also makes a good point where she's like, psychopaths can't kill me if they don't know where I am. And, like, it's like, wow, that's a paranoid way to think. But also... She's right. She's right. So it's kind of like, eh, maybe she should just kind of hide out. Well, like, also, I... So, I don't really... I don't think I've ever talked about this, but, like, I have PTSD. And Sydney in this film is a character I can so heavily resonate with. Like... The way she's paranoid, the way she is putting up these walls to protect herself. And, like, I cannot blame her for a second, but at the same time, like, I'm pretty far into my healing process with my own mental disorder. So I can see, like, man, that is a dad that has nothing but love for you. Exactly. It's like, on one hand, you want Sydney to be living her best life, but on the other hand, it is deeply understandable why she's having all the reactions that she's having. She does kind of crash on the couch, though, after her dad leaves, and that is when Sydney has a kind of nightmare about her mom, because earlier on, her and her dad, not only had they been talking about, like, you know, Sydney kind of leaving her house is Sydney had also been talking about how her mom and his wife had kind of ruined their lives. Like, if she hadn't been theoretically, like, cheating, like... Not only cheating, but, like, living that second life. Yeah, she was, like... And so she was kind of, like, blaming her mom for the situation that she lives in now, which is, again, kind of understandable. Like, the reason why Scream 1 happened is because... Her mom was sleeping with, like, a married man. And, uh, yeah, shit kind of spitballed from there. So later on, when she's kind of, you know, crashed on the couch, Sydney has, like, a nightmare about her mom where her mom also just turns into the killer. And I think it's mostly just kind of guilt, right? Because she does genuinely love her mother. But also, this image she had of her mom is kind of battling like, the reality of the actions that her mom did. So, I yeah. think while we were between this and... Maybe you even said this at the beginning of the episode, but, like, I think you're very on the nose with, like... Scream, weirdly enough, is about, like, the children paying for the parents' mistake. Yeah, yeah it is, like, uh, the last three, like, Scream movies really do kind of feel like the sin of the parents and, like, the repercussions of that. And unfortunately for Sydney... Sydney... Wow, why am I having such a bad time? I don't know either. Usually I fuck up the words, but you ain't doing too good today, bud. But, um... Yeah, Sydney is only paying the sins of her mother, specifically. And, like, even as, like, her mom appears, like, dead and stabbed, she accuses Sydney of being just like her. You're killing everyone around you like just like me because of how toxic her mom was because her mom was again living this double life her mom had like the picture perfect family with her husband and daughter but she was still almost sabotaging that by sleeping with married people and with other people and Sydney kind of feels like she's also toxic because she got like her best friend. She's gotten several of her friends killed. She's gotten a lot of strangers involved and also killed. And so she feels just kind of like 
that she is carrying these like sins that her mom kind of laid down. They're very similar and that they hurt all the people around them. Anyway, Sydney does eventually wake up and luckily we never get the name of her dog, but luckily she gets to wake up. It's Cherokee. Oh, Cherokee. So luckily uh, she gets to wake up and her dog is there to comfort her. We then though cut to, I believe, Sarah, who is the actor who plays Candy in Stab 3. Sarah, the actor, comes to um, the uh, studio slash kind of like set office. Yeah, it's the office space. So like this is where the scripts are being written. It's where the writers and editors most likely are. It's where the crew is. Exactly. And while she wanders in, it is pretty empty. It is pretty desolate. And as she was walking around, Tyson jumps out of the woodwork who plays um ricky or pretty much randy to kind of just jump scare her because he was getting some special effect like makeup done and so him and the special effects guy just decided to pull like a little prank on her sarah is a little pissed but like tyson and the makeup artist like you know kind of leave she does though walk on back to roman uh, i think it's the the director right correct uh, she walks back to like the director's office where she drops his music award and breaks it (laughs) and then tries to tape it with like scotch tape back on as she's kind of in the office um there is a call to the office which she picks up and it's roman who's just kind of calling being like oh hey i'm gonna be late by the way i'm stuck in traffic and sarah's a little upset she's like well fuck like you called me down here and he's like yeah yeah like I just want to like talk to you, you know, about your character. I want to go through them, some of the lines. And Sarah is kind of just pissed. And she starts just kind of like ranting a little bit. Like she's like, why am I like a 31 year old playing like a 25 year old? Like, like I feel like my, like I'm playing a character who is like only showing up for two scenes. And most of those are naked. Like I should, like we need to, I need to have more lines, more of a character. And Roman is kind of doing like the, yeah, uh-huh. Can you read your lines? Yep, uh-huh. Can you go through your lines again? <laughs> Just completely like walling her. But then as the conversation progresses, well, turns out it's uh, not Roman. It's the uh, killer. And uh, he pretty much just like, you know, announces to the call that he's going to pop up and kill her. Sarah freaks out. She like le- runs out of the office. She runs down the corridors. She runs into a closet, which happens to be the closet filled with ghost face costumes there's at least like 30 of these costumes oh my god yeah like because she breaks in not only to like the because i'm thinking of like a stage closet so this is like a like set room right so there's a bunch of costumes props mess and so she sits down and she tries to call like 911 outside the door that we watch the security officer go down the hallways sees that no one is here and goes to lock up for the night And sadly, though, he's locking the killer in with Sarah because it turns out the killer was there all along. He pops out of, like, you know, the rack of ghost face costumes. Sarah and him get into a scuffle. Sarah does go to grab a machete, but they are in the prop room. Yeah, she keeps on... (laughs) She keeps on grabbing, like, prop after prop. Yeah. It's like, I'm like, look, you're in the fucking prop room. Wrong place to hide, man. None of those things are real. But the knife that Ghostface is carrying is obviously real and Sarah is dead. Killed. We then cut to Gail and Dewey who are like meeting for like a little lunch brunch date um, to argue about their relationship and why it failed. 
But anyway, they kind of just like arguing back and forth. And then Gail is like, hey, why are you really here? You love Woodsboro. You wouldn't just leave it. Like, what is going on? And so Dewey's like, hey, like off the record. And Gail's like, yeah, yeah, I know I got you. And Gail's like, okay, so off the record, someone called the Woodsboro Police Department about um, Sydney claiming to be someone who's a part of the studio, calling about how they wanted Sydney's files for the movie, but how the Woodsboro police is like, no, we're not gonna give you those files. Those are like under strict, like confidential. We're not gonna give you those. And so the next day it's revealed that someone had broken into the police precinct to steal her files. But luckily Dewey had already grabbed those and like burned them. So those files weren't even there anymore. But Dewey's like, hey, I believe that someone in the studio is like the killer. I don't think he burned them. I oh. think he just took them to oh. his house. Oh, that's also... He, I'm probably just being too dramatic. <laughs> I'm just, like, picturing in my mind, like, Dewey, like, in the woods, like, with a giant bonfire, tossing in single paper after single paper. If Kevin Williamson was writing this, that's exactly <laughs> what it would be. <laughs> but, sadly, that's probably just in my own head. After, like, you know, Dewey kind of, like, reveals this, Dewey gets a call from uh, Jennifer, who is calling about how, like, you know, she wants him to come home, like, back to her house, because as she reveals, there has been a second murder. So Dewey leaves Gail to rush to Jennifer's house. <laughs> Gail follows him, though. Anyway, so they run into Jennifer's, like, house in Hollywood, and they kind of all bicker back and forth, and it's revealed that so far, the killer is killing people in order of the script honestly so, not a bad plan as a not killer a, no not a bad plan though uh it is also revealed though that gail dies next in this script though again this is in this script because it's kind of like revealed later on that there are apparently like three scripts roaming around because apparently they don't want people on the internet to find out like the movie which is a great like a uh, tip of the hat to scream to exactly uh but anyway we uh then kind of cut to i keep the detective the detective's name um kincaid thank you thank you cut to kincaid who is uh, currently in the studio office talking with his partner about the murder that happened in the office when gail appears and kind of talks to the detective and they're kind of just chatting back and forth um, and then after that, the weekend cut to Dewey, Jennifer, and Roman at on, like, these casting chairs. Like, and the thing is that Roman is, like, talking about how he's never going to make another movie again. How after this movie, he wanted to write a romance, but they wouldn't let him. They said one more horror movie. And how he's next. And he shows up, like, holds up his, like music video award that's decapitated and it's like look i'm clearly next how is this not a sign exactly but that's also when uh, detective um king kate i got it comes in with his partner and is talking to that like the three people like you know doing and is like oh by the way roman you're going downtown and roman's like why and they're like well it's revealed that sarah was called into the office and that you called her that it was spo- that you were supposed to meet up with her to talk. And Roman's like, I never did that. Like, that wasn't me. I didn't make any calls. And, well, from our point of view, we're like, oh, it was probably just, 
like the voice again like the voiceover like he had like the killer has all of these recorded voices he's framing roman we then cut to sydney who um is at home working so she's on call for like the crisis line when she gets a call from well her mother <laughs> I guess. I guess, yeah. Getting a call from her mom telling her to turn on the news. I think at first when she picks up the line, it's someone saying that they killed someone. Like, oh my god, I killed someone, I killed someone. By the way, this is your mother. Turn on the TV, Sydney! Don't you recognize your mother's voice? And that's when Sydney turns on the TV and she sees that, you know, Sarah, like Candy, is dead and then the killer also just kind of repeats over and over do you think it's really over sydney that is also when sydney pulls out a gun which valid valid fair we then again cut to jennifer's house where kind of like all the actors um for the production have like gathered i guess tom who plays dewey is kind of just being like a dick and he's like reading through like the lines on one of the scripts and just tossing them out he's also kind of drunk but also, uh, they're kind of just chatting, and that's also when, oh gosh, the character that plays Sydney, um, An- Angelina? Angelina, yes. Yeah, Angelina is just kind of, just a little, like, distraught, upset. Um, Honestly, like, watching her, I think she's the killer through most of this movie. Really? Oh, I always put my bet on Kincaid. I don't know why, but I was so convinced he was the killer. I was convinced throughout the entire film that, like, the detective was the killer. But anyway, moving on. Um, Well, because, like, he has an unhealthy obsession over Sydney. He does have an unhealthy obsession over Sydney and kind of, like, Hollywood in general. Like, right so bitter about, like, Hollywood. We, like, as, like, um... What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, we were talking about how Angelina is acting sus. Yes. And also how Jennifer is, like, really kind of just bitter at her. As the kind of crew just, like, separates a little bit, Jennifer and Dewey kind of walk off on their own. That is also when Gail arrives at the house. She doesn't walk in the front door, though. She spies Dewey and Jennifer, like, walking down a hallway. And so Gail, instead of knocking on the front door and asking how everyone is... Eavesdrops and stalks them? I mean, she is so fucking jealous. She is so, so fucking jealous. So she eavesdrops, but that's also when Stone appears, who I forgot to mention is Jennifer's bodyguard in the film, who is voiced by Kronk, which is just fucking great. He also calls Dewey Dewdrop. Hey, Dewdrop. Which also I just think is actually I really like that nickname. I think it's really cute. But that's just me. Anyway. Also, like, I love that his natural cadence, his voice itself, is just Kronk. It's just Kronk. It's fucking great. Kronk is kind of just like... (laughs) (laughs) I meant Stone. I'm so sorry. Stone is like, hey, we have an intruder. It's Gail. And Gail's like, hey, wait... I'm not just here because I'm jealous. Wait, no, I'm not I'm not jealous. And Dewey's like, what the fuck are you doing here, Gail? Um, and Gail does ask to kind of like pull like Dewey aside, where she tells Dewey that Roman was released, but also that at the um killings, there have been these photographs of Sydney's mom, Maureen, when she was young, that there have been photographs found of her 
at every killing. And when she shows them to Dewey, Dewey recognizes it. And because he sees it and it's the same, it's a picture in front of the studio that the others were photographed at. Yeah, specifically uh, Jennifer had the same backdrop in her headshot that Maureen had. So he could quickly go like, oh, this is where we're currently filming. Yeah. And it's also revealed that while Maureen did live almost the entirety of her life in the small town of Woodsboro, for like her 19 and 20, like her 19 to 20 something, she dropped off the face of the earth. Like she left town and vanished until she showed back up at Woodsboro and married her like husband and then had Sydney. But for like a couple years, no one knew where she was at all and that those years of her life have kind of just vanished except for these photos that somehow the killer has anyway as this is as like um gail and do we have this kind of like oh fuck reveal um they're like well we, we have to go to the cops this is like huge so as they kind of like run out the door dewey calls pro- stone <laughs> stone sorry calls stone who is for some reason in dewey's little like rv van that's parked next to jennifer's house well for some reason there's like this uh it's not a huge dick measuring contest between the two men but like stone doesn't think he should take any orders from dewey and vice versa because of each of their unique experiences in their quote-unquote law enforcement type jobs yeah where stone is just a bodyguard used to protecting the stars and starlets of hollywood dewey was an actual fucking cop like but uh stone does say earlier your resume reads more like a obituary which is fair and not to say that i support the cops in any any measure but dewey has also been through this twice like yeah, he wasn't, like, here of the day, charging and knowing immediately who the villain was, but he has survived these events two times before. You should probably take a little bit of credit to his name and listen to what he has to say. But anyway, when... Uh, He's going through Dewey's yeah, shit. going through Dewey's shit, just kind of, like, rooting around. We also, like, he's also, when he's rooting around, does find a picture of him and, like, Dewey and Gale in the drawer, which I thought was kind of cute. But as Stone is kind of going through this, he hangs up, and then, well, the killer appears. Um, the killer and Stone get into a tussle, but Stone does eventually kind of go down. We then cut to Gale and Dewey. Gale and Dewey do run back into, like, the main house and find that kind of everyone is gone. And then there's, like, the little semi-series of jump scares where the rest of the group shows back up. And then, you know who also shows up? Stone bleeding out and dying has managed to crawl he walked oh oh yeah he staggered his way back to the front door to be like killer and then dies which honestly he's actually trying to say dewey's name yeah like he's yeah he's trying to honestly like his the last moments of his life is him trying to do his job and warn people to get the fuck out yeah which honestly credit to him right But then, obviously, Stone shows up. He bleeds out. There is a little bit of chaos where the group runs back into the house, and they run back out of the house, and they run back into the house, and then they hear a phone ringing. They realize, though, that it's none of their personal cells that are being ringed, but it's the fax machine from inside. And it's printing out a new script. Yeah. Which, again, meta as all hell, but I love it. 
So as like the facts is printing out, like the new script, it's describing what's happening. Like Stone staggering in, the chaos of them going out and in and out and in of the house. The facts does also start to print out though that one, uh, that someone will be spared, that mercy will be shown. And the rest of the, like Dewey's like, look guys, Forget the fucking facts. Let's just get the fuck out of here. So the most of the group makes a run for it. But Tom, who plays Dewey in Stab 3 or, or the Stab franchise, runs back in. He's like, no, 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 no. I want to find out what happened. So he runs back in. But the whole house, uh, the power has been cut for the house. So he goes into the kitchen, rummages around, and finds a lighter. The problem is that the people who will be spared are the people who smell the gas. So, bye-bye, Tom. Boom. Yeah, boom. And the rest of, like, the group outside is blasted back. For me, this is the most unrealistic kill in this movie, I guess. Yeah. Mostly because, like, it feels almost Looney Tunes how the explosion is. Yeah. Because if there was that much gas in the house, they he would have went up it. the moments he that would. lighter went on and there was like a split two seconds for him to read the script yeah. and two i don't think it would have taken out the whole house no. it would have just taken out that room yeah it would have just taken out the kitchen i mean it still would have killed tom oh no he was yeah. dead yeah he was dead but it is very much like looney tunes but anyway and also i do find it fucking hilarious how like everybody's blasted back and poor dewey fucking goes head over heel down the side of a mountain. There is a problem though, because when he finally stops rolling, he pops back up and he hears both Jennifer and Gail calling his name for help. And do you want to guess who he picks? Gail. Yeah, he picks Gail. Uh, so he rushes towards the sound of her voice. Um, which is honestly kudos for him because as he comes around the bushes, and sees Gail, he sees Ghostface right behind her. And I will give, again, credit to Dewey, because he just props up his gun and shoots, like, five bullets into his chest. Where was his aim in the first two movies? Like, Jesus Christ, if it was any of the other, like, up to this point, four Ghostface killers, that would have been a dead Ghostface. Yeah, like, he really just empties his clip into this guy's chest. And, like, I just assume that Dewey's been practicing, like, training nonstop for this event. But Ghostface goes down, uh, Gale and, like, Dewey have this very romantic, like, oh my god, you're safe kind of moment. That is when they, though, turn around and see that Ghostface has disappeared. Uh, but they still kind of m make eye contact with each other and get lost in each other's eyes. And that's when Jennifer shows up pissed as all hell like what the fuck you're supposed to protect me so she punches dewey and then gail fucking socks jennifer i love how gail got the like iconic punch of this yeah. movie she got to punch her gail weathers which is pretty fucking great and then there's the kind of bitching back and forth where like jennifer's like oh, my lawyer's gonna love this and gail's like well i love this and anyway bottom of the line <laughs> Ghostface has disappeared. Yeah, eventually, though, the weird thing is, though, that as, like, the, you know, Gale 2.0 and Gale the OG and Dewey are just standing around screaming at each other, Angelie pops out of the woods? Again, super suspect. Uh, 
See, but my thing is that she'd wandered, honestly, she'd wandered off so early on that she could have been the ghost face killer, but I don't know. I just thought, I was like, oh, meh, I don't know, you're not giving killer vibes for me. But anyway, so she pops out of the woodwork somehow, and then that's also when Dewey finds a picture of Maureen underneath Gail's car. Um, we then cut to, um, well, the police, police, oh my god. Precinct. Thank you. Where Kincaid, Dewey, and Gail are all talking about the most recent murder of Tom. And see, for me, I already had suspicions about Kincaid, but in this moment, I was like, oh, it's definitely Kincaid, because Kincaid is like, we need to see Sydney Prescott. Bring. We need to find out where she is. We haven't known where she is through all of this. Where are her? Where has she been? And like. And like why? Yeah, he's like really vicious and visceral about it. Like you need to bring Sydney in now. And like because the thing in is that Dewey and Gail have brought up how Maureen is really like tied to all this how her pictures have been showing up at each of the killings, how she went missing for like a couple of years and nowhere would know where she went. I think, and yeah, and I think at this point in time, the killer has also made claims to have actually killed Maureen in the first place. And so they're all just arguing back and forth and Kincaid is like freaking out like, where's Sydney? And, um... Batman? <laughs> but also at this point in time, Dewey makes a really good point. Like, why would Sydney know more about her mom? Like, you already contacted, like, Maureen's husband. Wouldn't he have known more? I don't think Sydney needs to get involved in this. And um, Kincaid's trying to make the argument of, like, you're impeding the, um, uh, the case. case. Yeah, you're impeding the case. But, like... like You'd think he'd understand that Sydney's in fucking hiding from Screams 1 and 2. Exactly. Dewey does kind of, like, leave the room and try to call Sydney. And apparently he's tried to call her before, and it keeps going to voicemail, and he's just like, Hey, Sydney, I'm just calling. I just want to make sure you're okay. But while he's calling Sydney, guess who shows up? Sydney! Sydney! A little, honestly, downtrodden, but Sydney does appear... And she kind of just walks up to Dewey and is like, hey, are you okay? Dewey's like, oh, I'm all right, but what the fuck are you doing here? You need to go back to your house. You need to keep in hiding. And Sydney reveals that the killer has already called. Sydney has already been threatened. Like, she's already in danger. She might as well be here in the thick of it where she's not alone, where she has, like, a team to fall back on. That is also when Gail and Kincaid kind of show up around the corner and uh, kind of just... No, well, Dewey brings her to uh, oh, Kincaid's room. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so Dewey brings Sydney to Kincaid's office, and they kind of, well, uh, talk it out. Um, that is also revealed where they're all talking, like... Because, see, this is the thing that, like, solidified Kincaid as the killer in my mind. Because as they're on the office, like, again, Sydney reveals that she's already been called and threatened. And Gail's like, well who has your number? And she's like, my dad and Dewey. And then, well, Gail is like, well, Dewey, who has used your phone? And Dewey's like, the only two people who've used my phone have been Jennifer and Kincaid. Those are the only two people who've used my phone. And so I was like, oh my God, it's Kincaid. But most likely someone just stole his phone or, you know, got the information from it. We then kind of have this scene where Sydney finds out that... Her mom is heavily involved 
with the murders because they have Kincaid has this like board in the background that has all the pictures they found put up and Dewey has to reveal the fact that her mom was involved they don't know how but just that things are not as they appear and well Sydney is kind of like why the fuck didn't you tell me Dewey and Dewey's like I just didn't feel like it was pertinent you've already gone through so much well isn't this also by the point that the killer has claimed that I killed Maureen yeah yeah no he is definitely by this point in time claimed to have killed um, Maureen and so I'm not sure if they tell Sydney that but yeah Anyway, so the group was like, look, let's just head out to the studio. We need to investigate more. So the group heads to, like, the Stab 3 studio where they actually meet Randy's sister. Yes. I never caught her name, but she kind of steps out of, like, one of the trailers and is like, hey, guys, like, I got something important to show you. And they're like, what are you doing here? We thought you were in Woodsboro. And she's like, I have important, I have something really important to show you so she kind of welcomes them into the trailer and randy's sister puts in a tape from randy himself i fucking love randy i'm so sad that he was killed off in the second film i would have loved to have more of him but it's revealed that randy once he had found out about you know the kind of situation going down in scream 2 that he had made a kind of last record or last video that he was like oh shit I might not survive like then like you know the next few days so I'm gonna put into like video format my last will and testament Martha Martha okay so Randy's sister Martha and so what Randy's last video is about is about trilogies because Randy's like look I'm probably not gonna survive this experience and if i don't i want to help you guys in the future and if i don't you will be seeing this video exactly and he's like because if this situation happens again you guys need to know some things about how trilogies work because trilogies are definitely different than sequels and so randy breaks down like these new trilogy rules in horror films and how he kind of explains it is that the killer in a trilogy in like the final uh in the third movie is superhuman all right he can't be killed you're gonna have to like like uh explode him like decapitate him like he's not gonna go down easy he the killer is superhuman also in trilogies is that anyone can die no one is safe in a trilogy and that means that sydney is more in danger than ever and third the past is going to haunt you. The past is not going to stay dead. Everything you thought you knew is going to become, like, false. So be warned, the past is going to ba- come back to bite you. I um, remember he even brought a few trilogies mm-hmm. into focus for, like, comparisons. And I just was so glad we got to see a little snippet of Randy in this, which is fucking great. But anyway, and again, also how on the fucking nose this is. I loved it. So after, like, Martha, like, and the group, in the gang, like, watch his, like, last video, um, the group splits up. The two gang, well, the group splits up. What happens is that Dewey and Sydney go off, and then Gail Weathers goes to do some 
you know, investigated, investigated, investigated journalism. Some sleuthing. Some thank you, some sleuthing. And as she, like, just kind of gets out of view of Dewey and Cindy, um, Jennifer appears. And Gail's like, what the fuck are you doing? And Jennifer's like, look, if someone's out to kill me, I'm going to stick close to you because they actually want to kill you. So if I stick close to you, they'll kill you first and not me. And honestly... Sound logic. <laughs> sound logic. But I just fucking love this because Jennifer is like, well, I, I can help because I'm going to be more Gail than you would ever be, Gail. And it's just fucking hilarious. It's a bitch off. It's a bitch off and I love it. So they do manage to get to like the studio archives where they go downstairs and they meet none other than Princess Leia. Fucking fantastic. Or, you know... As Carrie Fisher goes, no, I just look like her. Which is fucking great. They do have to bribe her, though. But eventually, Princess Leia is like, okay, like, I'll show you, you know, what's going on. And so Princess Leia takes them into the back where these just lines and lines of file cabinets. And she's like, look, there's not going to be anyone under Marine, like, what was it? Marine Prescott? That's not Marine, uh, Marine, um... Reynolds? It, yeah, I believe Reynolds. Yeah, because that was her, like, maiden name. You're going to look up for, like, a false name. Usually something like a nickname. So they look up Rena Reynolds, and guess what? Who pops up? But, well, Maureen Prescott. As she, like, unclips, like, or uh, grabs the file, she, like, hands it over to the Gales. And as they open it, it's revealed that Maureen was an actor. A young one, like, kind of just starting off. But she was an actor in Hollywood during this time period that she was missing and that the three films that she worked on guess what were um milton's yes og horror films from the 70s and that milton had definitely known marine prescott when she was a young actor anyway with this information and with the help of princess leia they go to kind of like meet back up with the group I like how you don't even call her Carrie Fisher. It's just <laughs> in, in your notes, I see Princess Leia. Princess <laughs> Leia. She's Princess Leia. She comes to help. Anyway, this we cut back to Sydney, who was just not having the best time of it. She's kind of just sequestered herself in the bathroom. And is just like splashing water on her face, like just trying to deep breathe, like meditate her way through the stress. And as she's there, though, she turns around and she sees like shoes go from the ground to like the top of the like to on the, to the toilet seat she opens like she bangs through like the bathroom doors and it's just fucking angelina there crouched like some goblin holding like this bag and when she's like oh shit it's sydney i'm sydney no wait i'm not actually sydney but it's you sydney and she walks forward and drops her bag and out pours like all this ghost face shit so, honestly, for a second I was like, are you Ghostface? But then I was like, nah. Like... Well, like, I, I feel like this is exactly what's gonna lead you to suspect her further. Yeah. She's not exactly there during the house scene. Yeah. She's now got Ghostface boots and drops the Ghostface mask in a very, again, suspect way. Like, this, for me, paints her... Maybe she's not the uh, leg man of the operation, but the phone man. Yeah, she's somehow definitely indicated. But the way she goes about explaining all this is that this is memorabilia. 
she doesn't know with how things are going down if she's ever going to be able to work in Hollywood again or get another acting gig again. So this is like insurance. (laughs) She's like, look, I might not be able to get another movie, so I'm just going to take as much memorabilia as I can. And I honestly thought she was just going to like hawk it off for money. (laughs) Probably like at the end of the day. More than likely. More than likely. But anyway, after she kind of just like... And the reason why I didn't think she was the killer is that I was just... You would have to have some serious fucking balls as the killer to look Sydney in the eye and say, this this ghost face mask? Just memorabilia. I mean, the first killer was her boyfriend. <laughs> that is, you know what? That you make a very valid point. Once Angelina has made her excuses, she enters, she exits through not the um, kind of like main entryway from the bathroom, but actually the stage exit, because this is actually the bathroom offset. So as she runs through that like kind of set door, Sydney follows her. Very surprisingly, because I guess I wouldn't have expected Sydney to chase after Angelina into a dark corridor. Well, I think what's funnier is we can see when Angelina leaves, she faces right and goes right. When Sydney leaves that same room, she goes left. So Sydney didn't even go the right way. No, it didn't even go the right way. But as she's wandering through this kind of maze of set pieces, it turns out as she wanders out onto the set that it is the set for the Woodsboro, like, neighborhood for Stab 3. And it really is like a Sydney coming home. She even, the house she exits from is even Dewey's house. Stu's house. Oh, shit. Stu's house. Oh, fuck. Stu's house. Oh, no. Ah. But anyway, as she just kind of, like, exits out and starts wandering around, she manages to find her room in the set. And honestly, I think she's just, like, caught in a flashback sequence. Like... You can hear both uh, Stu Mocker and Billy Loomis's voice play in the background. There's a lot of background, like, ah, ghost voice type of stuff in this movie. But I feel like this isn't, like, a killer messing with her by putting her mother's voice here, like we see in other instances later in the film. I feel like this is her actually recounting the first film and what her friend and her boyfriend were saying while they were actively going to kill her. Yeah, no, she is having some flashbacks and not the fun kind. But as she's kind of just sitting there, like, caught in her own mind in her room, she hears something and watches the door to her room close. She That's when she kind of pulls the trick she did in the first film, which is when she catches the door on the handle of her closet door and steps back and you can see her just start to like panic and that is when Ghostface pops up behind her through a window. They get into a kind of tussle, they roll around and Sydney manages to make a run for it crying out for Dewey and they kind of just make a run through the entire kind of set. Sydney does kind of manage though to finally ditch Ghostface but then she hears Marine's, her mother's voice, like, luring her to a certain part on the set. And when she gets to it, it's a recreation of her mom's death. Yeah, the murder scene and everything. And, like, you can see Sydney break here. Yeah, Sydney is not having a good time. That's also when 
ghost face like pops up and Sydney's like fuck this and jumps out the fucking window well it's not even ghost face he stands up as Maureen's body oh with yeah. Maureen's voice playing over and I think that's so much more fucked up than the ghost so, face oh so fucked up so yeah honestly Sydney jumping out the window is real uh, me too I would do the same that's also when Kincaid and the police, or no, no, it's when Dewey and Gale arrive, and then behind them, the police come. And at this point in time, um, Kincaid and the police are a little skeptical because they search the entire set and find no evidence of the killer. Kincaid also shows up like three seconds after oh, the rest yeah. of the police. Which is why I thought, uh, you know, well, Kincaid really. As they kind of just, and the. To be fair to the other cops, Cindy is freaking the fuck out. She is clearly just not having a good time. And so I kind of get where they're like, she is hysterical. Do we believe her or is she having hallucinations? But they do kind of just pack her up into like a police car and like just kind of get her down to the station Honestly, they do kind of, like, spitball the, like, maybe you need to be in, like, protective custody, something like that. That is also, though, when Gale and Gale 2.0 show um, up and reveal to Dewey what they had found out about Maureen and how she had been... Martin? No. Milton. Thank you. Milton uh, had known Milton and that Milton had known Maureen back in the day in the 70s. And so they um, kind of just, like, all agree to, well, confront Milton about this, like, info. We then cut to Roman and Milton talking. Milton is sitting down at this very fancy desk, and Roman is pacing back and forth, like, my career is over. My career is ruined. They're calling me a pariah, and I don't even know what that word means. Exactly. Um, But Milton is, like, trying to talk him down, like, look... Hollywood is rotten. This will just get you more famous. Which, honestly, he's kind of right. That is when Gale and Gale 2.0, you know, kind of break into the office with Dewey. To Uh, me, it looks like you write write, uh, Gale squared. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I do, right? I I wrote down Gale squared. Uh, But yeah, no, Gale squared and Dewey show up at Milton's office, kind of barge in, like, ready to confront him. Milton does send Roman off. Apparently, also, it's Roman's birthday that day. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Um, And he kind of just, like, stalks off. Um, And that is when um, Gale, Squared, and Dewey confront Milton. Like, hey, you knew Maureen when she was here. Why didn't you say anything? And at first, Milton is like, I don't know, Maureen. I knew so many actors back in the day. They were all just... I had so many people coming in and out. And they were like... Classic Velma. Ah, we never said they were actors. Exactly. So Milton's like, okay, you found me out. I didn't recognize her. But I didn't recognize her till Stab 2. And by that point in time, why would I mention anything? Like, you know, I could have been accused of being a killer. That'd make me so much more suspect. Exactly. And they were just like, bull... Freaking shit, man. Tell us the real story. Like, we'll release this to the press. Like, I, Gail Withers, am a noted, like, person in the journalism She's a sleuth. She's a sleuth. She She will air your dirty laundry. Exactly. 
and make buck off of it. Exactly. So Milton kind of breaks down and... He discusses uh, kind of the grotesquity of what is Hollywood. Yeah. And how, like, yeah, you're a young actress, but, like, at this time period, especially, like, what? She must have been an actress in, like, somewhere between the 70s and 80s. He says the 70s. You go to these parties to meet new people to work for them, but you gotta pay a little extra something to maybe get that job. And they're obviously talking about, like, sex trafficking their own actors and using them not only as, like, stars for their movie, but as, you know, tools of pleasure, which is disgusting. It's fucked up. Yeah, no, the way... Milton kind of tries to defend himself is that Milton goes on to be like that he would host parties and he would invite these women to attend and if they were to attend they obviously consented to everything that went on at the party I mean they were there to get ahead in life it's not his fault and like the look that the other three people in that room give him is a look of absolute disgust. And he's just like, it was the 70s. It was a different time. They deserved it. And it's like, oh, you're that kind of scum. Well, like... Fucking great. That didn't even only stop in the 70s. No. I mean, this is why exactly at the top of the episode, I'm like, wow, for 2000, the messages in this movie are super ahead of their time. Like, Milton just kind of reveals this very toxic underbelly of, like, the Hollywood, like, industry. After that, we actually cut to Sydney and Kincaid, who are talking. And at this point in time, I was like, ah, Kincaid, murderer. This is the one moment that made me, like, doubt that he was the killer, because him and Sydney have a very honest conversation with each other. Kincaid reveals that he has lived in Hollywood his entire life and that he has gone very bitter because of what he sees going on. Well, he's a homicide detective. So, like, unfortunately for him, he only sees Hollywood's murders. Yeah. They kind of just talk about, like, the ghosts they both literally and figuratively have in their pasts and in their life. And Kincaid actually really manages to comfort Sydney by saying that the mom that took care of Sydney is the mom that matters, right? The mom that Sydney, the mother that Sydney holds in her head is the one that matters and the one that is true to Sydney and shouldn't be kind of defaced, right? And honestly, good for him. That was just like a really nice thing to say. But at that point in time, Kincaid kind of gets up and is like, oh, I have some more, like, investigative stuff to do. I gotta skedaddle. And so he leaves the office. We then cut to Gail Squared and Dewey in the car driving towards the police station until Dewey gets a call from quote-unquote Sydney about how she has been invited to Milton's house because, um... Apparently, Milton knew, like, her mom from back in the day. And so Milton is going to kind of reveal some things. And that Sydney is going with a full police escort. That Kincaid is there with her. And they're going to, like, Milton's house to, like, 
talk about it and that she wants Dewey and Gail Squared to meet up with her. And then she kind of hangs up abruptly. And so I was like, this is obviously the killer. Well, also, like, how Sydney is talking, like, yes, this is Nev Campbell talking. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not how Sydney talks. Yeah, it really is not. Especially, this isn't how she talks to Dewey, who has really become family to her over the years. That is not how she talks to Dewey. But anyway, at when we cut to Milton's house, Gail Squared and Dewey arrive to... Roman answering the door with a banner over like the front where it says happy birthday Roman (laughs) and he's like at this point in time looks just drunk and he kind of just leaves them into the room where there's and what like the thing is that they show up and they're like oh we're here for Sydney and Roman's like oh yeah Sydney I'll grab Sydney he wanders into the main living room and points at Angelie or Angelina Angelina. Angelina. And look, there, Sydney. And they're like, no, the real Sydney, not the actor. And Jennifer's like, you know how I'm Gail and she, Gail, is Gail. <laughs> it's fucking great. They kind of just like, you know, bicker back and forth. And they're like, well, you know, Sydney will be here with the police soon. Blah, blah, blah. Tyson is also there. Roman kind of brings up the fact that Milton probably had a bunch of secret rooms at his house. He brings up the fact that apparently Milton had, like, secret, like... A private screening room. Yeah, a private screening room, and he wants to, like, you know, find it. And Tyson is like, why the fuck are you going off alone when there's a killer loose? So Jennifer volunteers to kind of wander around with him. So yeah, Roman and Jennifer go looking for a secret room. Gail and Dewey kind of like stake out near the front door waiting for Sydney. And um, uh, Tyson and Angelina, that's their names, right? Yeah, Tyson and Angelina. I'm not actually sure what they do. I think they wander kind of off They want to well. wander. Yeah. As Gail and Sydney are near the front door, Gail says that... You mean Gail and Dewey? Yeah, Gail and Dewey are near the front door and Gail like is like, hey... Dewey, you should call Sydney. Just call, like, the last person who called your phone. They do that. But we all know it wasn't Sydney that called Dewey. So they a phone rings in the house. When they go exploring, they open up the closet to reveal the ghost face costume, phone, and then also a voice modulator with different recorded voices on it. So they're like, oh, shit. The killer is here. So they, like, split off. Gail goes to try and find Roman and Jennifer. And Dewey goes off to try and find Angelina and Tyson. When we cut back to Jennifer and Roman, they're kind of just wandering, like, the house. They do manage to find, like, the basement where they wander down. And, well, we kind of get a jump cut and... Roman's not there anymore. So Well, he goes into the basement and there's all these cool fucking like really monster cool. movie props. Yeah. And when he opens the coffin, that's when we suddenly cut back to Jennifer. Yeah, we cut back to Yeah, Jennifer who's still wandering around looking for Roman. And then we cut back to I think Dewey. Dewey who manages to find Tyson, but no Angelina. And then we cut to Gail, who is looking for Jennifer and Roman. 
uh, she also manages to find the basement. In the basement, she finds Roman dead and is jump scared by Jennifer, who is absolutely freaking the freaking the fuck like out. Like, is he dead? Is he dead? And just, and like Gil's like, yeah, he's fucking dead. Well, the motherfucker has a giant knife in his back. Of course, he's dead. Yeah. So they fucking book it. It turns out, though, that Angelina has also found a secret passageway because as Gail and Jennifer are running down the hallway, Angelina fucking just pops out like, hey, guys, I found a secret passageway. They go through all of the house. Isn't that cool? Check it out. Check it out. And Angelina is not clued in on the picture because Jennifer and Gail are freaking the fuck out. And they're like, why? No, there's a killer on the loose. Roman is dead. We need to find Dewey and Tyson and get the fuck out of there. And it's also revealed that I feel honestly really bad for Angelina in this kind of movie because Angelina reveals that she had actually slept with Milton to get this role, which, oh. Further part of the problem. Yeah. You know? oh, yeah. And she's like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, I had to sleep with this guy to get this role, and this is not what I signed up for. And so she makes a fucking... She books for it just out the door. She's like, I'm not going back for anybody else. I'm just leaving. But sadly, she splits from the herd and is culled. Oh, she gets, like, fucking bum-rushed by Ghostface and stabbed faster than you can count to five. Yeah, and it's just kind of just left on the stair. We then cut back to the group that does manage to kind of reconvene in this strange bedroom. Oh, I forgot, though. Is it as Jennifer and Gail are trying to go after Angelina, they find Angelina's dead body. Ghostface pops out of fucking nowhere. Gail and Jennifer make a book. They fucking book for it down the house. And that's when they come across Dewey and Tyson in this room surrounded by, like, these trees aren't thing anyway and then there just becomes a brawl of Ghostface versus like the scooby gang <laughs> like because like you know Ghostface is chasing jennifer and gail they run to the room where tyson and dewey are dewey manages to punch Ghostface. Ghostface slashes at dewey tyson fucking quarterback i i don't know anything about sports but like rushes him knocks him over tyson is stabbed there's just Fucking just chaos everywhere. Quickly um, after he's stabbed, he's also thrown off the balcony. Oh, yeah. But first, while this is all going down, Jennifer flees the kind of chaos scene, runs into a closet where she also finds a secret passageway, which she runs down. At that point in time, Gail clocks Ghostface over the head with a vase to help Dewey because Dewey was knocked down. Tyson runs out to try and call 911. Ghostface follows him, stabs him again, then throws him off the balcony, killing Tyson. And then we cut back to Jennifer, who is in the secret passageway, who is running down. Ghostface, though, now obviously knows about the secret passages far better than the rest of the gang because... Ghostface pops out, stops, starts, like, hunting Jennifer, trying to get her. She manages, though, to find her way back to the bedroom, but not in the way that helps. Because as she runs back to that bedroom, it turns out it's just a bed surrounded by one-way mirrors. And Which is gross. Yeah, we all know what that bed was used for, and that's disgusting. Disgusting. But anyway, so she comes back 
to the bedroom, but on the other side of the one-way glass, so they can't see her. And she starts banging on the, like, one-way mirror, also revealing that it's also soundproof. Another yuck. But anyway, she's banging on the mirror, but then she also sees, like, Gail go to Dewey and be like, oh my gosh. Dewey, are you okay? Get off of him! You've saved me again, Dewey! And <laughs> Jennifer, like, as she's being chased by the killer, is like, you get away from Dewey, you har! And I'm just like, you know what? <laughs> Fucking perfect. I love this. She's got her priorities. She's got her priorities straight. But sadly for her, Ghostface shows up, and so she starts banging, like, full double fists onto the mirror. And Dewey notices that the wall is vibrating and is like, oh, she must be on the other side of it. So he starts shooting down the um, panels one by one, getting closer to the vibration because he doesn't want to shoot Jennifer. But sadly, by the time he, well, you know, gets to that panel, Jennifer is already dead. Yeah, she, yeah. her body crashes through yeah. because Ghostface has stabbed her twice. Yeah, uh... So, rough. That is when Ghostface kind of appears again, manages to just clobber Dewey and chase after Gale as they run through the building and the house. Um, Gale manages to run down to the basement. Sadly, Ghostface is wearing, like, long robes and fucking just... Eat shit. Eat shit on the staircase, pretty much knocking himself out. And honestly, one thing I love about the Scream franchise is it makes the killers really believable. Like, these aren't, like, trained warriors. These are just a couple of guys who just decided that murder was cool and wanted to kill people. They have all the limitations that a person who did that would. Oh, in Scream 6... One of the ghost faces is like a fucking tank. Oh. And it's terrifying. Oh, okay. I really, okay. I can't wait till we get to Scream 6. But anyway, so Ghostface fucking just falls face over ass down the stairs. And so you just have Gale at the bottom of the staircase staring at Ghostface as he twitches unconscious, freaking the fuck out. She does managed to call Dewey. Dewey, who was upstairs, screaming for Gale, trying to go through all the, like, the rooms. And he gets a call on his cell phone. He answers it. And it's Gale, like, hey. Hey. Like, the killer's here in the basement. Rescue me, Dewey. He's here in the basement. And Dewey's like, how do I know this is Gale and not the killer? And Gale's just like, Dewey, you fuckface! <laughs> Get the fuck down here! Which, honestly, that would tell me it's Gale. That would immediately tell me it's Gale. But anyway, so Ghostface wakes up, Dewey comes down, has the gun, shoots at, tries to shoot at Ghostface, but he's already emptied his clip. He didn't count his bullets. He did not count his bullets. So Ghostface tries to, like, do this really epic, like, throw his knife kill, but he's never done this before, and Dewey is lucky as shit. So instead, it's the hilt that hits Dewey straight in the forehead, knocking him unconscious. So then he falls face over ass down the staircase, which he already did in Scream 2, lands unconscious on the ground. Gale, like, freaks out. is like, Dewey, no! And, like, fall, like, just jumps on top of Dewey's body to cover. Be like, no, Dewey, no! 
Um, and uh, they're both captured. Yeah, and they're both captured. Great, great job, Gail. <laughs> great job. We then cut to Sydney, who is in Kincaid's office. In the background, we see Kincaid's partner wandering around being like, has anyone seen my fucking partner? Where is Kincaid? Well, also, someone brought a pizza and 90% of the police force is like, ooh, pizza. pizza. You can even hear someone go, it's not a party. Get back to your job. <laughs> and so for me, I'm like, ah, Kincaid is on the loose. The killer is free. But also, in the office, Sydney is kind of just like chilling. And she kind of goes to sit at Kincaid's desk. And she sees like... In his honestly very cluttered workspace, an entire file dictated to her. Like, it's, in a, it's, in a, it's a stalker file, I'm not gonna lie. Highlighted articles, the whole ordeal. Pictures of her, like news articles about her, quotes from her, like... This guy's down bad. This guy is down really fucking bad. I think there's even screenshots from, like, news interviews from her. It's a lot. And as she sees this, she gets a call on the line. She picks it up, and it's the killer. Or no, I think technically at first it's, like, her mom, and he taunts her through her mom's voice. But then he just reveals that... The killer, Ghostface, has Dewey and Gale hostage. And he tells her very, very plainly that if she comes unarmed to, you know, wherever he dictates, they will live. But if she runs or informs the police, they will die. She does ask for proof. And um, he does kind of like, I think, kick Dewey or something like that. And so there's... No, he says something along the lines of like, You'll just have to see. Oh. And you can hear Gail and Dewey saying, Sydney, don't. Oh, in yeah, the don't come. He does also taunt her by saying, Don't you want to know who really killed your mother? We then kind of, you know, she, like, the phone call ends, and Sydney, uh, oh, I totally forgot, by the way. Sydney does leave Kincaid's office to go to a more remote office to take this phone call. And when, like, you know, the call ends, she goes rummaging around to find a gun, which she does successfully manage to find, which, go Sydney, never go to a second location unarmed. She, you know, gets in the car, drives to Milton's house to find Tyson up front, like, dead, just on the front lawn, pretty much. When she gets there, though, she gets another phone call, which is the killer saying, hey, there is a metal detector in front of you. Scan your body. You're not coming in armed. And while she, you know, scans, you know, her body, he's like, hey, check your leg. She checks her leg. There's a gun there. He, you know, demands that she toss it in the pool. And she's like, where, where are my friends? Where does, where are Dewey and Gail? And he's like, they're just inside. She kind of peers around and they're just like in the living room of Milton's house. She runs to them and tries, starts trying to like untie Dewey that is when, um, well, the killer appears and he's like, ah, Sydney, you have fallen into my trap. And he fucking like backhands her and she goes sprawls. But then she also turns around and reveals that she had a second gun tucked into her jean pocket, which is fucking great. I love you, Sydney. You are she the best. She had two guns on one leg. Like, she thought this shit out, man. 
She knew what was up. She knew what was up. But sadly, she shoots him in the chest and doesn't make... Because the thing is, is that in the first scream, we found out you have to shoot the killer in the head. You just... And even in Scream 2, you gotta do a headshot to make sure they're dead or else they will keep popping up. And Sydney forgets this very crucial rule because she shoots him in the chest, he goes down, she turns around to free... Dewey, but when they turn around again, the ghost face killer has disappeared. And that's when Kincaid shows up. And I'm like, don't trust him, Sydney. He's the killer, Sydney. And Kincaid's like, hey, like, it's me. He even, like, lets go of his gun. And, like, both hands is like, hey, Sydney, let's, let's like, talk this out. Because she has a gun. She's like, fucking, like, I'm not She's gonna shoot him. Yeah. Turns out I was wrong, though. Because while Sydney has all of my reservations about this, because we both saw the file he has on her, and he showed up without his partner, Ghostface appears behind Kincaid and kind of just beats the shit out of him. And honestly, I felt really bad. I was like, oh, fuck, man. It's I mean, not Kincaid. I feel like that shows you the strength of the script, though. Yeah. Like, it gaslit you. Because, like, I thought that... Angelina was the red herring. I'm like, oh, it's way too obvious that she would be the killer, right? It's Kincaid, who's, like, grown bitter after being a homicide detective for years, right? And also by that point in time, I was like, well, Ghostface clearly has a, like, bulletproof vest on because everybody's shooting him in the chest and he keeps getting back up. Who would have access to, like... A bulletproof vest, but a police officer, right? He would also have all the information needed for a case, blah, blah, blah. I was wrong. I'm sorry, Kincaid. Don't be sorry. I won't be. Okay. But anyway, so the killer shows up, fucking beats the shit out of Kincaid. Sydney runs and manages to find her way through a secret door. But once she enters, like, the secret passageways, she hears mom's voice kind of urging her down a certain hallway. This way. This way. Sydney, don't you want to talk to good old mummy? And as she walks through a so far unopened secret door, a room is revealed where there's like a projector where it shows Marine being kind of filmed. And it also is a kind of like what are they, like, a cigar lounge? Yeah. There's, like, couches, chairs. There's a whole, like... Um, this is that private theater we heard about Yeah, earlier. the private screening room where there's that full, like, bar there. Like, I would expect this to be, either, like, a really high-class, like, bar. A speakeasy, A speakeasy. Or just some really rich dudes. Like, yeah, he has it fully kitted out. And it's then that we get a full reveal of the killer because once he's gotten Sydney into this room, it's very important that she's specifically in this room because he reveals himself to be Roman, the director. And he reveals to her that the reason why all of this has happened is that Maureen had a very tragic time in Hollywood. What happened is that, well, she was specifically taken to this room Horrible things happen. She left Hollywood, but she didn't leave Hollywood without, well, abandoning her child that is the result of this room, which is 
very fucked up. Um, but apparently she put this kid up for adoption and she just fucking vanished, right? And so this kid who grew up only had the name Rena Reynolds to go on, but he was like relentless. He was like, once I find mom, I'm going to have my happily ever after. I'm going to have a real family. Like everything's going to be perfect for me. So he does manage to find Rena Reynolds. But the problem is, is that she's Marine Prescott by this point in time. And when he shows up to her front door, instead of welcoming him with open arms, she freaks out because she has done everything she can to like forget that this event had ever happened. She has a husband, she has a kid, and she has just tried to forget all of this. Well, like, Maureen was sexually abused in Hollywood, and, like, I don't blame her. The last yeah. thing she wants to see is a product of her abuse. Honestly, that is a very... Her reaction is very understandable. It's it's really sad that that is the reaction that Roman gets, but it's one that's understandable. The thing, though, that he feels very vicious towards is that he starts stalking her is that he cannot let this go so he starts stalking Maureen he finds out about this perfect life that she lives with her husband and child but he then finds out that Maureen is not only sleeping with Cotton Weary but he's also sleeping with Bill's dad as well and for him like you know this is kind of you know Maureen is not all right. She's clearly gone through some serious trauma and is now not a very healed, happy person. But Roman is really kind of messed up about this, both by the double life that Maureen leads and the fact that he was not welcomed like he had pictured in his mind. And so what he does is he contacts Bill. Like Billy Loomis. Like he contacts Billy Loomis and kind of riles this kid up to kill Maureen Prescott. The reason why Maureen Prescott was killed is because Roman kind of instigated all of this. And, you know, he is full on, like, monologuing. Like, he is, like, Roman is full on villain monologuing about how he was an abandoned kid. He wanted to find, like, peace and happiness, but he couldn't. This is his tragic backstory, and this isn't the end, because he also reveals that he has Milton tied up in the closet, and he starts explaining to Sydney what's gonna happen, is that he's going to go upstairs, he's gonna kill Dewey, and, you know, he's gonna kill everybody else, He's then going to kill Sydney and then he but he's also going to kill Milton and he's going to blame everything on Sydney. He's going to say that Sydney killed Milton because she found out about the tragedy of her mother's life and that she had a mental breakdown and killed Milton because one of the things he had framed the perfect kind of tragedy to end Sydney's happiness, right? He hated Sydney because Sydney had the life that he didn't get to have. So he kills her mom via Billy and then sends Billy to kill Sydney, right? Well, I, I feel like he only sent Billy to kill Maureen 
But everything after that just escalated so yeah. much. But he still expected for Sydney's life to be ruined, right? And if he'd been following it at all, he would have been kind of hearing that Billy was not only going to kill Maureen, but he also started killing other people. Because Maureen obviously died, and then, like, a couple of years later, like, the whole situation in... Woodsboro happens where people start falling and I'm sure Roman feels vindicated that Sydney's life is falling apart again right and he also is happy that she accused the wrong person right well Sydney survives and she doesn't only survive she becomes like a cult classic in her own right she becomes a hero movies are made about Sydney Prescott and how she survived all of this. How she's a survivor and a leader. And Roman is butthurt as all shit about this. Like, oh my god. Roman is so pissed that, like, not only did Sydney survive her mom's death and the complete insane breakdown of her boyfriend, but she becomes famous and no one gives a shit about Roman. <laughs> Yeah, Roman sucks. Yeah. She's through with his shit, and they fucking brawl. Yeah, like, the thing is, is that Dewey, um, oh, not Dewey, I'm so sorry. Roman reveals all of this, kills Milton, and Sydney's like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm not responsible for this, and neither is my mom, and neither is your mom. Like, our mom is not responsible for you going on a killing spree. Stop playing the victim you did this, no one else did. And um, Roman can't kind of handle that. And so, yeah, they just fucking throw down, like, mano y mano. They just start punching the shit out of each other. It's a good fight. It's a great fight. I fucking love it. At this point in time, though, Dewey and Gale manage to free themselves. Dewey goes to Kincaid. Kincaid is still alive and just fucking hands his gun to Dewey, like... Do what I could not. Dewey runs with Gale because they're trying to find the secret, like, entrance to get to Sydney, right? But they, like, can't break in. So Dewey just grabs, I think it's a fork or a knife, and jabs it into the fucking socket, plug socket, fucking electrocuting himself. What's he gonna do? Damage his spine further? Exactly. So, like, he shorts out the circus the whole like all the lights in the place go down it turns into a gun versus knife fight oh no i forgot so dewey fucks with the plug and then kincaid i somehow manages to get back up find a gun and manages to enter the uh he manages to pick the lock on the door enter where he gets immediately knocked out again by Ghostface. Kincaid is not having a great time. It then turns into a knife versus a gunfight because Sydney pulls a knife on Roman, but then Roman has grabbed Kincaid's gun and fires at Sydney because, you know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So Sydney goes down. He double taps. Yeah, but he does double tap. Uh, but then when he hears Dewey and Gale figuring out how to break down the other door, he turns around. When he turns back, Sydney's fucking gone. Also, Dewey says something that's, like, extremely out of character, but you can believe it. He goes, 
if you hurt Cindy, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, which honestly, yeah, no. Dewey's through with this bullshit (laughs) at this point in time. So as Roman is kind of turning in circles trying to find Sydney, Sydney calls his cell phone as he tries to call hers. She then pops up and fucking stabs him in the back with an ice pick. He turns around like, what the fuck? And Sydney reveals that not only did she steal a gun from the police station, she stole a bulletproof vest because she's like, why the fuck wouldn't I? I guess siblings really do think alike. She then stabs him in the fucking chest. Go, Sydney. Dewey and Gail finally manage to break into the room where they kind of just come across like Roman and Sydney kind of just sitting down and holding hands. Well, like a part of me feels like she recognizes like their mother damaged both of them heavily. Yeah. Like, The sins of the parent. Yeah. And, like, even though, yes, Roman ruined her life immensely, that's still, like, your sibling. Yeah. And there's still this kindred fellowship that the two of them have specifically because of how much what Maureen did fucked their life over. And I think the thing is, is that Roman, we don't know when Roman found out about the situation that kind of made him, right? Like, if he was really desperate to find out what happened to Rena Reynolds, he probably found out the situation with Milton first along the way and then tried to find Maureen. Like, so he's, yeah, he's heavily been damaged by Maureen and they both have. And while he shouldn't play the victim card because, you know, he wouldn't kill all these people on his own, Sydney can kind of recognize the damage, right? And, like, just recognize, yeah, that the sins of the parent made each of them who they are. And so Roman and Sydney hold hands as Roman slips away. Sydney gets up and kind of quotes to Dewey, like, you know, because Dewey's like, whoa, what the fact? Like, what happened? And Gail's like, oh, shit, it was Roman the whole time. And, get, and like, Dewey's like, what happened? And Sydney says, you know, Randy was wrong he wasn't superhuman at all. And she starts to walk away and then fucking Roman pops back up like, you ain't done with me yet. And he has a gun and he's just like, and so Dewey starts emptying the entire clip in his gun into Roman, but Roman keeps walking forward. And Roman though is saying, kill me. Why don't you just kill me? And Sydney screams at Dewey, shoot him in the head. So... Dewey, with honestly perfect aim, just raises his gun a little bit, and uh, yeah, Roman is no more. Done in by headshot. Yeah, no. Rough way to go. I don't know how many times I scratched out the ways Roman died, but uh, Roman went out a lot in this movie. He fucking wouldn't stay down. After that, we cut to, well, Gail and Dewey at Sydney's house. They are looking down where we see kind of Sydney taking her dog for a walk and she's returning to the house. Gail and Dewey are having this wonderful moment where Dewey um, has one of Gail's books and asks her to sign it. She opens the book and it's an engagement ring. And I am currently screaming at the scream like, you've already tried this twice. Why are you trying it for a third time? But it's honestly a really cute moment. Dewey is like, look, I know we've tried before. 
and I both know we've agreed that this wouldn't work, but like... Let's try. Let's try. Who gives a shit about what'll happen or not? Why not try again? We both clearly love each other. Gail accepts his proposal. And as they walk back into the house, Sydney comes up to the gate, which she leaves open. And then she walks through the door and she goes to, you know, close and lock it. And she instead decides to kind of just leave it open. And through the other door, we see Kincaid with his arm in a sling, like, hey, Sydney, want to watch a movie? I got popcorn. And, you know, she kind of just walks into, like, the living room to watch a movie with Kincaid, Dewey, and Gale. And it's obviously, thematically, a show of her welcoming people into her life, right? She sees a fellowship in Kincaid as someone who has grown kind of bitter and desensitized and but she's still making effort to make new friendships and new relationships and she's leaving the door open for new possibilities well like i find it very interesting that we end the door the (laughs) we end the door with the movie open we end the movie with the door wide open just because like yes i want sydney to be healed and to live her best life Obviously, that kinship I feel with her, it's like, yes, I want the best for you. But I don't think her healing should have happened so fast in the epilogue. Yeah, it's... uh, I think the problem is, it is a little like, oh, they killed the villain, and now we all get a happily ever after. And I'm like, I... Very unrealistic. Very unrealistic how she is happy and skipping after, I'm assuming... Because Kincaid isn't healed all the way up. So I'm assuming it's, what, a Maybe month? Maybe a week. Yeah, like a couple weeks to a month after she killed her brother. After finding out her brother killed their mom. This is a lot more therapy than is needed. Yeah, like a lot more therapy is needed to get to this point. But I, I do get the point that they were making that she has kind of healed at least in her own way that she is at least learning to trust some strangers in her life again and uh spoiler alert kincaid and sydney do get married just want to rip that band-aid off for you so you know that like they get married they have children they they get a happy happily ever after oh thank fucking god Honestly, again, I feel a little bad by how much I was so convinced that Kincaid was like, I thought of no other options. I was like, no, Kincaid's the, Kincaid's the killer. I clocked him immediately. He's definitely the killer. Nope, I don't, I don't care if like Angelina is showing up in Ghostface attire. Kincaid is the killer. <laughs> I don't know why I was so vehemently you know, pro Kincaid killer. But when he showed up to, like, help Sydney, I was like, oh, fuck. He just wants to help. I feel bad. I'm glad that he also gets a happily ever after now because I still feel a little, I feel a little guilty. So, uh, yeah, no, that is Scream 3, the end of the original trilogy. Scream 4 doesn't come out for, like, I believe another 11 years. Oh, So fuck. there is a big gap between yeah. these next two. Oh, shit. But let me quickly go over the deaths in this field. We had five people stabbed with a knife. Just blatantly not quite to the... We're considering three and up multiple stab wounds. Yeah. So two stabs, which is kind of the MO of 
Roman in this. Like, the he's... lone ghost face, by the way. Yeah, he stabs him a couple times. Also, oh. the fact that Candy or Sarah and Roman, he didn't use a voice modulator he didn't at all. Use a voice modulator at all. It like, only the for the time. ghost voice. Or the ghost face voice, but, like, the Roman voice, that's just... Man, and what he managed a fucking to get troll. A, yeah, and he managed to get away with it, and the whole, the decapitated, like, <laughs> oh, so good. And I also fucking love that in the first, like, part of this movie, Dewey even tells Gail someone at the studio is trying to kill Sydney, And it's kind of a throwaway lightweight line because it's so early on in the film but he was 110% right. He clocked it immediately. Dewey almost always clocks the killer. Yeah. Like, that is one thing about Scream. He almost always clocks exactly who the killer is without proof. Yeah. So he spends most of the movie trying to find proof. Exactly. Yeah, five people died by the knife on screen. Uh, one person bled out from their knife wounds. Sorry, Kronk. We had one house explosion, someone falling from uh, the top of a building, technically, or falling from the building. I saw it falling from a balcony, I guess? Yeah, um, just so we can pile up more bodies in that area. It's, we're being vague and saying vague, falling off yeah. a building. Because like, if we start, like he fell one story, but this character fell two stories. That's going to get super convoluted Oh my fast. god, yeah. Uh, we added one more person with their throat slit with a knife, and boom, headshot at the end, classic scream fashion. And the soundtrack and sound design is right there with the rest of the scream movies. It's even got a bit more of that like '90s turning into aughts alternative rock music. There were, there were some interesting songs. The, there were some interesting songs that really. Threw me back to early 2000s in not the most pleasant way. Yeah, like, the music, uh, like, once you hear it, it's like, wow, this is dated. I can tell yeah. exactly. I can see your frosted, spiky white hair. God, what was it? Like, one of the songs, like, reminded me of, like, Three Days Grace or something like that or some shit. Like, yeah, so it's very of the era, but, like, also you got, like, the classic Scream soundtrack as yeah. well. Where you hear, like, the unofficial Scream soundtrack song, uh, Red Right Hand, I believe it's called. Yeah. The sound design, always where it needs to be. Wes Craven, he's always solid in there. The gore and implied gore was a little bit stepped back, but, like, Wes Craven fought for it to be where it is. And considering everything we said at the start of this episode good for him for standing his ground honestly yeah he does it really well because i remember watching kronk die and the thing is there, there was this mom one moment because kronk gets stabbed in the back first but kronk turns and then tries to attack ghostface but ghostface shoves him and he falls back into a wall pushing the knife into his back and you can kind of hear it well also <sighs> like like in Tucker and Dale versus Evil with the cop walking with the spikes in his head, there are, like, legitimate accounts of people, like, walking far distances after the point where they should be dead. Yeah. Just to, like, give their final warning or final words to, like, help or get their body help. Yeah. But, like, honestly, 
I feel like that's kind of expected in Scream movies because as I was talking about originally, like, none of the Scream villains stay dead. You have to do the headshot or else somehow their body keeps popping back up. Scream 3, for as held back as it is, it is still a good fucking horror movie. I really And I even, it. like, raised my initial rating of it because I, when I first reviewed this movie... I've reviewed it at the beginning of me reviewing horror movies. I've seen a lot of dog shit since then. I've yeah. seen worse movies than Dracula. Yeah. And oh, God. it's like, wow, I fully enjoyed this movie. I laughed at all the right places. And yeah, there are moments where I can point at and be like, oh, that's dated. Oh, that's Looney Tunes. Oh, that's uh, gross. It's still really well executed. I really enjoy movies that get me yelling at the screen. <laughs> like, I want to be invested. And I think sometimes is that there are some less than perfect movies that still get me invested in what's going on. And honestly, I think the Scream franchise is a really good way of getting you invested. Even though you kind of know what's going to happen, right? Ghostface pops up, somehow connected to Sydney. Sydney saves the day rinse and repeat right but i still enjoy it and it's still a blast and um our next movie is going to be 2016's don't breathe grace we are stepping back into like the deep end of the pool we're gonna be heading towards some movies that are gonna be a lot more intense a lot more grotesque and i will unlike scream 3 where yes there's sexual assaults it's not blatant on the screen type of stuff. It's told, not shown. This one, you don't necessarily see it happen, but Don't Breathe has a scene that, like, as a female presenting person, you might get, like, heavy ick from it. No, joy. And I just want to give you that heads up, and whoever's listening, that heads up right now. We're going to be going towards a movie that is capital G gross. Well, not looking forward to that. It's very well made, though. Like, it is such a technically executed film that I think even though there is that moment, everything else in the film is going to be so good that even if you don't like the film, you can appreciate how it is executed, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like a... It, the things that happen in the story might be disgusting, but it is that doesn't mean that it's not well made. Correct. Exactly. So that is our next film. The current most common way to die is still being burned alive at 79 bodies. The honorable second mention is still monsters at 18 various monsters. I was shocked that we got five new bodies to the stab pile. But we're still only at 10 bodies. We need we need to fluff up these numbers, you we know? Need, more people need to be stabbed. And less people need to be burned. Please, no more burning alive. Oh, I'm sorry. There's, uh, I already see, like, one movie, two movies where that's happening. God damn it. So, there's going to be more added to our inferno this year. Oh, joy of joys. Uh, my favorite, most unique way to die is still the toilet lid via saw. Rough. 
And I believe, Grace, you're sticking through with the corkscrew. Corkscrew through the throat, man. Hush. Oh, man, I want I that love movie back. My... Oh, Hush is so good. Everything put aside, I'm really glad that I feel like I've converted you a little bit. You have converted me a little bit. I, I am so surprised because the thing is, I don't watch a lot of movies. I mostly, like, reading is usually where I get my kicks. So I don't watch a lot of movies. And before we started this podcast, you had to drag me kicking and screaming to watch any horror film. Before I met you, I had seen two horror films, neither that I had watched all the way through. And that was, oh God, I was like one corn maze one where I think aliens were real. Anyway, and then another one where it was like The Ring. The other one sounds like signs or something. Yeah, people lost in a corn maze, and then, like, there are signs made in the corn, I think, like, trampled corn, and then people from Anyway, I, it was in middle school. That's the last time I watched a horror film. And then I saw a couple with you, and I was like, I hate horror movies. I hate horror movies. Horror movies suck. And, and like, then we started the podcast. And I, now, now that's what I talk about with other people is horror movies. I feel like the day we do... I know you don't want to. The day we do revisit Gerald's game for this, I'm very curious to like where your stance is gonna be now that you can see horror as this formulaic thing, as opposed to like, oh, I'm gonna be watching this to get scared, not like I'm watching this to see like the bits and pieces, how it's made. Like, why does this scare me? I think the thing is, is that for me, I didn't like watching horror movies because I don't like being frightened. Reality already terrifies me. I don't need to build upon that. But by watching these movies with you, I've started to enjoy them because of, honestly, the stories. The stories get interesting. You start rooting for people to survive. You want to figure out who dies. You want to figure out who the killer is is and, and go ahead I, I was just gonna say oftentimes a lot of other themes are represented in horror films that are kind of deeply complex like just on like the slasher film that we just watched called out hollywood for a lot of the shitty things that it does and it's a slasher fic made in 2000 well like also like I feel like horror is a very safe place to visit these ugly feelings. Yeah. And unlike real life, you can't stop real life. A horror movie, at the end of it, it's over. And if it's too much, you can turn it off. As someone with PTSD, I found this genre very healing because it was very extreme, very uh, to the point. I watched like... Uh, extreme splatterpunk torture porn type of shit that extremity the fact that I could turn it off if it was too much the fact that I could watch it and desensitize myself to like these darker feelings I was feeling as like a very young teenager coming to terms with like some of the wretched shit I had actually gone through as a person it brought me to this point to where like I am who I am today because of this genre 
<laughs> you were molded by it. Crafted by it. Well, not even, like, molded by it, but just, like, healed. Yeah, it's it. your coping mechanism. I, I want to show this genre to so many people that are, like, anxiety-ridden because, like, I feel like it's a safe place to experience your anxiety. I think you put it very well earlier on where horror films display ugly things and i think the thing is is it safe to explore ugly emotions through horror media and i think it's sometimes just really just refreshing to just kind of have it all out on the table um dicks out for harambe dicks (laughs) why are you the way that you are uh horror movies i just said so (laughs) okay okay you got me in that well, yeah, anyways, sorry for the long episode, eh. but um, we had... Oh, we shit, always... is that two hours? Yes, that is. Oh, And that's fuck. before I cut it down. Oh, well, okay. Well, some of this might be cut. We look forward to coming back for our next episode, and hopefully you enjoyed joining us for Scream. I feel like the more movies we watch that are in this universe, the more we talk about this specific universe. I honestly, I'm really enjoying Scream. I think this might become one of my favorite franchises, and I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, ah, this stupid shit, yeah, it's probably terrible. Oh. I kind of like it. (laughs) I like it, Picasso. (laughs) I like it, Picasso, alright. Kung Fu Panda and Scream, so I sign. (laughs) Anyways, uh, until next time, this is Bodies by the Numbers, a horror podcast. See ya, and don't breathe. Bye. Bye-bye. My pancake. Thank you for listening to Bodies by the Numbers, a horror podcast. Our art is done by Emmy Art on Instagram, and our music is done by Disposable on SoundCloud. Links to our socials below, and we hope to see you next time.